Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. So, hi everyone. Uh, thank you for coming. We're going to go ahead and get started. My name is Scott Leland. I'm the executive director. I'm going to turn this on. Is that on? It is on. Yeah. I'm the executive director of the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government, which is hosting today's event. And it's my privilege to be able to introduce Mariana Mazzucato. Um, I'm going to start, though, um, not here at the Kennedy School, but over at Tufts University, mm -hmm. which is just three miles to the north from where we're currently sitting. Um, several years ago, Tufts created a prize um, called the Leon Leontief Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought. Uh, and it's named after Wassily Leontief, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1973. So a number of people that you recognize uh, have won the prize, including Amartya Sen, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, and Danny Roderick, uh, along with a number of other distinguished scholars. And it's awarded each year to theorists who developed innovative work in economics that addresses contemporary realities and supports just and sustainable societies. So the prize, this year's prize, was awarded just yesterday. And it was awarded to our guest speaker, Mariana Mazzucato. In announcing the award, Dr. Mazzucato is recognized for her path-breaking research on the role of the positive role of governments in fostering innovation. Uh, the, one of the directors of the institute that bestowed the award said this, the topic of innovation receives a lot of attention these days. What has been insufficiently recognized before the work of Mariana Mazzucato is the critical role of governments in innovation and hence the role of the public sector in the process of wealth creation. Mariana Mazzucato's work argues for concrete ways to make sure both the risks and the rewards are better shared so that smart growth is also more inclusive growth. Mariana Mazzucato is professor in the economics of innovation and public value and the director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Pur Purpose at University College London. It's a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. And um, I was awarded the prize actually with someone else, who's uh, Branko Milanovic, who you might know. He, along with Piketty, have been really thinking about not just the causes of inequality, but also the relationships which, with how we actually theorize about the economy. Um, I will speak for 40 minutes max. I have a timer here, so I don't go over that. Um, and I'm actually going to do the same presentation I gave yesterday, but yesterday I only had 25 minutes, so this is good. I can actually get through my slides. Um, and what I'd like to talk about is the need for um, a very different type of policy framework in economics away from simply fixing market failures towards one that's more active about co-shaping and co-creating markets alongside private as well as third sector kind of voluntary organizations um, and civil society. We shouldn't forget that uh, we have weekends and eight-hour workdays because organizations and civil society fought for those, so trade unions, and that absolutely helped shape the market. Um, and the, the kind of where I want to begin is that I really think that this is an exciting time to talk about co-creating and co-shaping markets because the agenda 
out there in the world, whether we're talking about the OECD, how they're thinking about growth, the UN, the European Commission, and many, dif many different uh, governments, at least in theory, in terms of how the talk is being done, is very much this issue about directing growth. It, you know, it's not enough to have growth for growth's sake, to think about the rate of economic growth. We have to be engaging with the direction of economic growth. And just quickly, you know, I mean, the kinds of talk that we hear are the need for growth to be um, smart, so more investment-led and with particular types of investment, for example, driven by innovation, more sustainable, so greener growth, and that's not just about renewable energy, that's about things like green cities, et cetera, and inclusive growth, so precisely because of the work of people like Piketty and Milanovic, we need growth that is actually producing less, not more inequality, and you'll remember Piketty's graphs that show how much inequality has actually been rising since the 1970s. So, you know, this is plastered everywhere. <laughs> when I walk into the European Commission, and I often do, I'm currently the special advisor of the Commissioner for Research, Science, and Innovation. Their budget is 100 billion euros. You know, these words everywhere. And they have been everywhere for a long time. Um, United Nations, of course, we have the Sustainable Development Goals. And some people sometimes criticize them as being a bit listy. There's a lot of them, and there's 146 targets, and, you know, what do we do? Well, more than 100 countries have signed up to them. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually steer investments, public and private, that actually helped us achieve um, these targets? So lots of talk about that. Again, most major conferences around the economy today will at least make some sort of mention about those goals. And there's also, in many countries, including where I live, which is the UK, a comeback of industrial strategy. And what's interesting there as well is there is a recognition that it's not you know, about funding sectors or giving different types of subsidies or investments to the life sciences, but actually, and I, I can't say this is completely accepted, but there's, again, talk about this, trying to get different sectors to come together to solve different problems, right? So whether it's the pharmaceutical company or the steel company or AI and design, what are the problems that these companies might be solving together and how can we use policy instruments, whether it's loans, equity, grants, to actually help those companies interested in, in uh, engaging with these challenges. So fantastic, right? Sounds great. We've kind of solved the problem. Um, now, the problem is that from the toolkit that we have, um, literally at the practitioner level, and I, like I'm sure many of you, work quite a bit with policymakers, whether it's at the city, regional, or national level, level the actual toolkit that people still continue to have is driven by um, ambitions that are much that are quite hard to use in terms of the metrics we use to have this kind of transformational growth. Because we shouldn't forget these are really kind of radical things, right? I mean, having innovation-led growth in the UK, for example, which continues to grow through consumption, so that private debt to disposable income is back at record levels, changing growth, steering growth to become more investment and innovation-led requires a transformation. It requires structural change. So the degree to which the current policy toolkit actually allows and nurtures real transformational and structural change to solve both the grand challenges, SDGs, but also to provide that shift in, for example, consumption-led to investment-led growth, I think is where the problem is. And what is the problem? Well, that there's, you know, these words might sound good. In fact, often they're used to sound good, right? We need to enable, we need to de-risk, we need to facilitate business. Um, we need to level the playing field. We need to get the right rules of the game. Uh, when you have a central bank, it has to be the lender of last resort. Just look at these words, though. They're all extremely kind of passive and kind of backseat players. So lender of last resort, not investor of first resort. 
Uh, de-risking. De-risking who? The risk takers. Enabling. Enabling who? Those who are actually going to create value, and then you might redistribute that value once it's actually created. Facilitating the private sector. When actually all those things that I just mentioned are really difficult. It's going to be really hard, really difficult to actually solve these um, grand challenges in the SDGs. A different type of word might be actually sharing the difficulties, thinking about those difficulties together, sharing the risks, but also sharing the rewards. I'll you know, come back to these words later, but fixing problems as opposed to actively shaping and thinking about strategic direction. So fixing market failures, fixing system failures. These are all very kind of backseat uh, player kind of agendas. And this notion that we're fixing market failures, as you all know, if you've taken any kind of economics class, which I assume all of you have, is you know, incredibly strong and embedded in the theory. There's all sorts of also fancy models and equations along all these. And of course, I would never say that we don't have market failures or that any of these kinds of policies, whether it's fixing the negative externality problem of pollution through a carbon tax or you know, investing in basic research because of the public good positive externality problem, of course those problems exist and of course you need different types of, if you want, fixing uh, uh, approaches, but <laughs> it would be very hard to use a kind of bandaging up fixing uh, approach um, in order to get the kind of transformational change again that I was talking about before. I'm going to try to convince you of this during this talk. Um, and one of the key problems with this fixing is that, you know, this is where value is created. These are the wealth creators. This is where the value creation process is simply mended and fixed. And of course, if you're coming out of the Kennedy School or any great school around the world and you're presented this image of you know, the excitement of being on this side, creating stuff, getting your hands dirty, taking risks, and hence also having to invest in the capacities and capabilities needed to do that versus just kind of moving things along the way, leveling the playing field, getting the right taxation system, facilitating the cool guys. Of course, it's more interesting to work on this side, right? So it also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of the kind of people that we attract around the world to want to work in one side or the other. Now, I am not about the state versus private. What I want to argue is that in order to build the most dynamic collaborations between public, private, and other types of areas, as I said, third sector uh, organizations, we need equal ambition about sort of co-creation of value between these organizations and also investment in those dynamic capacities and capabilities to do so. And it's the public bit that I think has been least theorized and has created, in fact, a self-fulfilling prophecy where we end up actually getting some of these kind of boring, inertial, bureaucratic uh, mechanisms, but that's also because we've thought about it that way. And yet this is really a problem because in the history of innovation, and I am an innovation economist, it, you know, if, if we look at the history of some of the most important uh, innovations which economists call general purpose technologies, GPTs, so those that have really transformed production, distribution, and even consumption across the economy, affected productivity across many different sectors, it'd be almost impossible to use a purely market-failing fixing uh, lens for what the policy process did along uh, those landscapes. And also, as I've already said, uh, that market fixing lens is going to be very hard um, to get us the SDGs. In fact, we even rhyme GPTs, SDGs. Um, and so uh, what I think we need, and I, I find much inspiration in Polanyi, is a real change in framework, a change in lens, like literally new eyeglasses through which to view the problem, 
going from, as I've already said, market fixing to active co-creation and co-shaping of markets. Carl Polanyi is very interesting on this front. When he looked at the history of markets, he kind of just began at ground zero. He said, well, the capitalist market, which is about 300 years old, itself, let alone innovation that I'm talking about, itself would never have actually come into existence without this kind of active policymaking process. And I think the reason that Polanyi's work is so interesting is it really does force us to change the vocabulary. Instead of thinking of policy as intervening in something called the market, whether that's good or bad, intervention, that, you know, just leave that to the side, just the concept that you're intervening in the market is kind of disappears when you read Polanyi because you understand markets as actual outcomes of public, private, and civil society kinds of interactions. And then the real question becomes, well, what kind of organizations do we need in the private sector? For example, what kind of corporate governance structures might we need in order to get certain kind of markets? In the public sector, what might be the kind of criteria guiding uh, public investments? Uh, how might we structure public organizations in order that they welcome exploration and uncertainty, for example, in order to explore new spaces? How might we get these different organizations to interact? What are the kind of contracts, literally at the mechanism design level, in order to get the kind of markets we want? So markets are outcomes. So this is what I tried to do in a book that I published in 2013 called The Entrepreneurial State, which was published in quite a few languages, but the German translation was uh, my favorite, <laughs> Das Kapital uh, of the state, so the capital of the state. And I thought it was a very apt title because it's exactly what I tried to then do in looking at the history of big innovations. Um, again, those that really had a, a quite a, um, how do you say, um, transformative impact also on the demand side and on consumption, but especially on the, on the supply side, and the role that uh, different types of state actors and organizations and the instruments used actually played this more active shaping role and you know, not lender of last resort, but investor first resort. And the capital of the state immediately makes you think of a portfolio, right? This is not about putting all your eggs in one basket, just doing the internet, just doing offshore wind. By the way, fracking, as you probably know, was also massively financed by um, the state. So don't think of this as a normative thing, right? This isn't good or bad. The state can also invest in lots of problematic areas, including wartime machinery. This is just kind of a fact that if we look at the history of innovation, we see this very active, broad and deep role, an investor first resort role, high risk taking, high welcoming of uncertainty, especially in some of the most capital intensive areas. And then the big question becomes, well, what does this mean for the future? For example, if we want a green economy, what do these lessons of how we know we got the ICT revolution, what kind of lessons are there for the future of green or whatever the next, next big wave is? There's also different questions around the, the uh, state of a particular economy. Not all economies are like the big US economy. What does this tell us about what the challenges are for lower income, medium income, high income countries, which obviously will be engaging with some sort of innovation agenda, but at different stages? Let me just kind of focus for now on this issue of what the sort of reality was behind places like Silicon Valley, precisely because actually increasingly uh, middle-income countries are trying to copy that model, and so you have different kind of Silicon Valley wannabes popping up around the world, and I would argue they haven't learned the lesson of the entrepreneurial state, the investor first resort, the market shaping role, 
Um, and instead, what you get is often things like, oh, we have some great universities. We just don't commercialize. And so we must have a problem here. So of course, we need venture capital, right? So you have all sorts of funds of funds and different bets being made on uh, different types of financing institutions without kind of getting that much more systemic and integrated analysis of what you know, was required, in fact, to get us uh, one of the most, not the most uh, innovative hubs in the world. And so the first point is really that the level of risk-taking and market-making that occurred in places like Silicon Valley was much deeper, broader, than that which one could understand by using purely a market-fixing role. So here are just some acronyms you might or might not be aware of them. So you know, NASA, you, you must have heard of, you know, from Space Agency, the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, DARPA, the Small Business Innovation Research Program, which through procurement policy allows small and medium enterprises to scale up through government purchasing programs around innovative areas, InQtel, the CIA's big venture capital fund, um, ARPA-E, which has modeled itself around DARPA, but it's in the Department of Energy, not the Department of Defense. Also, lots of different international ones. I haven't put them up here just to keep this a bit less busy. But Yasma, you know, in Israel is a public venture capital fund, like Citra was in Finland. Anyway, lots of different types of organizations distributed across the whole innovation chain, often, in fact, trying to get these eras going both ways. So you'll have like the Fraunhofer Institutes and Germany very much uh, centered around creating those feedback effects. But what's interesting, and I'll have some, I think I have a slide later, showing you this, but that these the organizations themselves absolutely do not say that what their remit is is fixing markets. If you look at what they're trying to do, it's actively trying to alter, change, transform existing landscapes. And I had a funny uh, conversation once with the head, or actually the person who set up Yosma, who said to me, this public venture capital fund in uh, Israel, who said, Mariana, obviously we're doing what you're saying. We are actively shaping and, and creating markets in Israel, but we can't say that. So let us just keep talking the talk of market failure. Um, and I, I've, I've handed out, I think there, there must be some extras, this uh, brochure of the institute I've set up at UCL, which is actually a department. And one of the first things we've tried to do is actually welcome many of these organizations to our institute. We just launched this network called the Mission Oriented Innovation Network a month ago to actually share the story. So instead of having this, uh, you know, let's pretend we're doing that, but let's actually do that. Let's talk Jefferson, but act Hamilton. We had sort of a coming out of the closet party for 30 <laughs> global organizations um, to you know, share what the experience actually was, for example, in terms of how they were evaluated with their local treasuries when they explicitly went out of the box of market fixing. But I'll come, I'll come more to that later. Um, so I mentioned the SBIR program. What's interesting, again, this is kind of, kind of like a public venture capital fund in the US, which I think most of you probably know about it. What's interesting is if you compare, so the darker lines here are SBIR, phase one, phase two financing, plus another public fund, STTR, compared to these lighter shades here, which is basically just private VC, is that if anything, even in, even in an advanced, industrialized, super capitalist economy like the US, you've required, and even more required, as, as, as the country got uh, uh, more advanced, this kind of public finance. This is not about catching up. This is actually about engaging with uh, innovative uh, technologies and transformative agendas. You require patient, strategic, long-term committed finance. Whereas the VC industry, if you know anything about venture capital, is very exit-driven. They want the exit to happen about three, maximum five years. Five years is kind of long-term for them. When actually this phase here, which is when they come in, 
uh, can even last, say, 10 to 15 years. So what you found is that as finance, and I'm talking about the whole kind of financial intermediation uh, uh, sector, has become increasingly short-termist, and there's you know, great books about this, this type of patient strategic finance has become even more important. And in some countries, it occurs through public banks. I'll mention some of these banks later. The Chinese Development Bank has absolutely been essential in China. So Huawei, number one in the world, telephone company, received an absolutely massive, I think, $5 billion uh, worth of, of a loan. Lots of the solar companies in China have as well. But you know, many of these investments fail. That's normal. Speak to any venture capitalist. They'll even brag about their failures. Yeah, we had Genentech, yeah, but along the way we failed, but then we had this big success. Same thing with these investments. You know, part of that uh, process of experimentation and innovating is also the tolerance for failure and really thinking about that whole portfolio. I'll argue later that you know, kind of, if you look at the investments, it kind of looks like a portfolio because, in fact, you have investments in areas like Tesla, which received a $465 million guaranteed loan from the U.S. government, and Solyndra, just a bit more than that. So it kind of was like a portfolio, but by not talking about it like an investment, by not admitting you're an investor first resort, they didn't go the next step and really set it up like a portfolio. You would never have a venture capitalist who just kind of was willing to um, use the funds to pick up you know, the pieces along the way without getting uh, you know, some of the up, up um, how do you say, the, uh, the profits from the successes. This is one of the issues. If you set up a portfolio, you will, in fact, fail. You will have maybe four or five cylinders for every Tesla. How do you actually socialize along that portfolio, not just the risks, also the rewards? This is a big missing aspect of these investments when we don't kind of talk about it as an active portfolio type of das Capital de Stat. Um, the iPhone, you know, anyone who's worried about governments kind of picking power, you know, and says, don't pick winners, just, you know, go back to leveling the playing field, to fixing market failures, we would never have any of our smart products in our phones because everything that makes these products smart and not stupid, you know, let me pick up my dumb phone, um, were actually publicly financed, in particular public organizations, which doesn't mean that there wasn't private activity. Of course it was. There, there was, but this was public money thrown at particular projects and often particular companies. So what would the iPhone or any smartphone be without the internet, GPS, Siri, or touchscreen display, all publicly financed? Uh, they would be nothing. They would be, again, uh, quite stupid products. Um, this is not to say that Steve Jobs and all the great people working in Apple weren't smart. Of course they are. What this means is that when you have an 800-page book on Steve Jobs, where not one page, not one paragraph, not one sentence, not one word, I love doing that, uh, is, you know, none of that story is in there, that's a problem, right? It becomes a very skewed, narrow storytelling about where these things come from. And of course there was private initiative, especially in Apple, great sense of design, simplicity, really important. If you read that book, you really get a sense of how important it was. He was also taking calligraphy classes, etc. Fine, fantastic, but why is there not, again, any storytelling on this other dimension? Um, and of course that affects how we think about tax, how we think about the rewards that in fact uh, uh, come out of this more collective value creation process. Um, and in fact it wasn't just uh, kind of military organizations like DARPA, the Navy, etc. What's interesting in the US, and I would argue China has learned this, is that that model of having kind of ambitious organizations like DARPA for the internet, and by the way CERN, another public organization but in Europe, fundamental or HTML, but you know how these organizations, including ARPA-E today, have been set up 
was you know, a big part of that lesson, and creating something similar within the health area uh, was very important for the U.S. So after defense, it's the health department through NIH that is the biggest spender in innovation. And what I like about this graph is it literally looks like a wave, because it's blue and it's kind of wavy. And in fact, what happened was that the venture capital industry very smartly surfed, you know, surfed the wave. Uh, they came in about here <laughs> um, and surfed this wave of investments which really led to biotech. They did not do the early stage biotech investments. This absolutely came from different worldwide, including MRC in the US, sorry, in the UK, Medical Research Council financing, which kind of laid that carpet down for, um, for the biotech sector. Um, and then the question is, you know, why, again, has, has that story not been told? When we think about biotech, many people immediately think about VC. And the VC industry itself, you know, it's, of course it's important. And how you structure a proper VC industry is very important. So there's been some studies that have looked at the difference between uh, European and US VC with the US one being superior simply in the sense that there's also lots of mentoring and kind of that soft money, not just the hard money. So of course VC is important, let's structure it properly. But <laughs> what it, you know, when the risks being taken are actually not as much as as we like to say, what would be the right risk kind of re uh, re reward relationship is 20%, which is what the VC industry gets from these investments, perhaps too high, given the actual risks um, in these particular sectors. And I've looked at nanotech, biotech, today in the space industry, and it's quite extraordinary how we see very similar patterns where the kind of high risk, high capital intensity kind of investments occur basically 20 years before. Uh, the VC industry gets its guts up to enter. And this is, in fact, what we saw in green tech. And green tech, by the way, is a great sector to look at because there's actually a fantastic database. Any of you who are looking still for master's or PhD dissertations or even uh, some undergraduate projects, you can use Bloomberg's new energy finance database, which gives you every, well, almost every, um, type of financial uh, investment made across the world around clean tech and what we see done quite a few papers with my colleague Gregor on this, Gregor Semenyuk, you see the kind of same thing, which is that this area here, high capital intensity, high risk, high uncertainty, within different parts of renewable energy have been financed by different types of public funds, and then VC comes in. And this, to be honest, is not a problem. It really is not a problem. It's when the stories that we tell around it don't capture that, then we get the wrong lessons being learned across the world, so too much kind of mythological trust in VC. Um, but also, again, uh, uh, different narratives about what should happen to things like, you know, capital gains tax. And we shouldn't forget, I always uh, say this, you know, that Plato, one of, one of Plato's many smart things that he uh, said was that uh, storytellers rule the world, right? So thinking about how we actually get also very strong lobbying and power in terms of the different relationships between public and private by the kind of stories we're telling in this space, I think is quite extraordinary. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's very interesting to reveal that and to then start asking what are the different kinds of stories that might lead to a different type of relationship given the evidence we actually have in the history of these sectors. So what's interesting in this area, clean tech, is the kinds of institutions that have been doing this bit, which is the hard bit, have been actually quite different from those that were doing it in ICT. So you have a big prevalence of public banks. I already mentioned before the Chinese one. So you have the Chinese Development Bank being probably the most active player in the world. The German public bank, the KFW, extremely active. Um, the European investment bank. 
And interestingly, up until about two or three years ago, the Brazilian Development Bank, BNDES, also played a very important role. And, and they're not really well understood because many economists um, you know, have no problem saying that a public bank should be counter-cyclical, which this bank obviously was. After the crisis, the disbursements went up. Right, That's the whole point. Private banks kind of retreated. Public bank increases. But they also directed it towards these climate protection projects. This is just the data for the projects in Germany. Uh, sorry, it's not updated. Um, but they also invested internationally in these kind of projects. So this is about kind of directing finance in particular ways, which makes people scared. They say, oh, that's crowding out. Wait, hold on. Go, go back. Just invest in SMEs. This kind of myth about SMEs when actually most SMEs are pretty crappy. You know, they're not very innovative. They're not very productive. They don't really treat their workers very well all the time. But the 6 or 7% <laughs> that do, you know, that are innovative, do have an aspiration to grow, are interested in innovation, they actually require serious finance. And once you've actually distributed it across all your SME population, uh, the actual finance that comes to the kind of ambitious ones often is not high enough. What was interesting with this was um, that this also coincided in the later years, and the, and the numbers keep actually rising, uh, with Germany's Energy Wende project, which was about kind of creating a green transformation of the whole economy, which required all sorts of sectors to transform themselves, including steel, so steel in Germany lowered its material content through repurpose, reuse, and recycle, which meant that also medium-sized companies and large companies needed to undergo that transformation. And this bank kind of lent money to those willing, I often say don't pick winners, pick the willing, uh, willing to transform themselves around that green uh, mission. Anyway, just to say this stuff isn't not understood very well, right? You know, just the fact we go back to the whole picking winners problem and um, you know, it must be crowding out. If you have an ambition about directions, you should just let the market decide. Had we done that, we would not have gotten any of the technologies in our iPhones. And um, again, I'll repeat, this is not a normative question. <laughs> this is just a fact. <laughs> now, what should be invested in, what should be invested in, should be, once we recognize these histories, be much more up to debate, right? Is it fracking? Was fracking the right thing to do? Was absolutely government financed? We then had a big debate internationally about fracking after it was financed. But once you admit the role that the state actually can play beyond this kind of uh, facilitating role, you immediately start asking other types of questions. Well, how can we actually make sure that these investments produce public value? How can we get more citizen engagement, given that citizens in the end are you know, co-financing this through whether through tax dollars or creating money, it doesn't matter. The point is it's a political process that actually gets us those kinds of investments. So what I want to do with the rest of my time, I think I have 13 minutes here, is to ask you know, this question, which is, well, what does all this mean? <laughs> well, you know, it's not enough just to say market shaping, market making, not just market fixing. Does this actually provide us with a different sort of lens? What might be a different framework? What might be the different words, the vocabularies, the discourses, the stories that we tell? What are the new categories? And so I framed this just to sort of keep with the uh, lion motif of, that was in the front cover of the first edition of, of my book. I've called it Roar. <laughs> uh, sorry if I, you know, I'm obsessed with these lions. Um, and I have a great quote later by Keynes. I'll just tell you what it is now because I tend not to get to that last slide. He said to Roosevelt, he said, we got a problem here. This was 1936. He said, you know, I use the word animal spirits, which makes you think about lions and tigers and uh, 
uh, wolves, but actually we got a bunch of domesticated animals out there. <laughs> we have gerbils and hamsters and pussycats. So in some ways, think of this as a framework to get those pussycats to want to roar. Um, what is, you know, again, what are the real kind of different types of dynamic questions we might be asking so we don't get into the usual kind of static <gasps> picking winners <gasps> crowding out, which doesn't mean you don't have a picking winners problem. You absolutely do, but you especially have it when you don't have an ambitious state, when a state just sees its role as giving subsidies to one sector, subsidies to one firm, as opposed to having this greater ambition to produce public purpose and public value. So these are the four questions I want to go through now. And I'm going to go through them quite quickly. It's really just to give you a sense, a flavor of, of what this is, but I'll just state them. You know, The first is getting over this kind of psychotherapy problem that we have of you know, don't pick. Of course we got to pick. Everything that's interesting that was picked, you know, was picked. Even the welfare state was picked. It didn't just happen, right? So the question is how? How do you actually set a direction, make strategic choices, but not stifle the innovative process while you're doing it? Actually really enable lots of bottom-up experimentation. And what you're picking is a broad direction, right? You're not picking offshore wind. You're picking the green transformation, which will require a whole portfolio of different types of investments and instruments which enable that bottom-up process. That's the question. Second, um, in order to do that, to produce the DARPA-type organizations across health, across different ambitious programs around cities, um, what can we learn about the lessons of the past on how to build explorative um, organizations that are able to, again, welcome risk, but also learn from failure? It's not enough to say risk, risk, fail. Yeah, well, learn from your failure, right? That's how we ride bikes. We fell down, then we learned, then we stood up again. But if you, in the meantime, are outsourcing all your knowledge, and that should be a word you're familiar with because there's lots of outsourcing going on from public institutions, you won't be able to learn from that failure. Um, and by the way, I'm going, well, sorry, I'll go on, otherwise I'll get distracted. Uh, assessment, how do we, if we're shaping and co-creating markets alongside private and other institutions, how do you assess those investments? So much of the assessment that occurs in ministries of finance and treasuries actually comes quite linearly from a market failure approach. So you're actually evaluating whether you fix that market failure. But what if you were doing something bigger than that? Like the BBC has absolutely gone beyond just fixing market failures in its area. It's also invested in soap operas and talk shows, but with the real ambition towards producing public value. How would you evaluate that? Um, and risks and rewards, something I'm very passionate about. I'm working on this quite a bit. Danny Roderick, who's here, of course, uh, picked this up a year ago as well. You know, this whole issue of um, how do we actually use different techniques, whether it's equity, whether it's pricing schemes, whether it's conditions on reinvestment, whether it's how we structure the IPR system to make sure that we're not just socializing risk, but also rewards. So let me just, again, give you a quick flavor. First one, directionality and picking. Well, one thing I've done recently is really worked um, concretely, actually, with uh, some policymakers, in particular the Commissioner for Research, Science, and Innovation and the Commission, to think about those lessons about directionality um, that we can learn from, say, the man on moon. So the internet and all these great things we have in our phones are actually kind of, you know, I'm putting this quite simplistically, spillovers <laughs> from having this uh, you know, ambition to get to the moon and back again safely within one generation. They weren't obsessing just about the internet. The internet was solving a problem along the way. Um, and having that, um, and the other thing that was interesting, well, I'll tell you two things that were interesting about getting to the moon. A, it was very ambitious, bold, inspirational. It got all sorts of you know, people wanting to actually learn STEM subjects again. It required lots of different sectors to do it. So 
you know, clothing had to innovate. You could not get to the moon in jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, it was not just an aeronautics problem. But also along the way, lots of different projects, hundreds of projects actually, had to be solved, kind of homework problems, of which many failed, right? So that whole level of bottom-up experimentation, cross-sectoral investment, bold and ambitious kind of mission setting, trying to tackle even a bigger challenge, which was, you know, the space race and Sputnik, is, you know, the model here. So start with the big challenges like the SDGs, but if you just stop there, like the European Commission has for the last 10 years, you don't get very far. If you're just saying smart, inclusive, sustainable growth, and transform them into missions, concrete, right? Targeted, uh, with time bound, that you can actually say yes or no, did you reach it or not after 10 years? And if along the way you're not getting any closer, perhaps turn the tap off there, pivot and move somewhere else, but again, mission setting and all that different projects. So what we did was we looked at all sorts of different examples just to tease out what the issues are. And the issues are big, because if this just becomes another way to capture policy, you know, I got a mission, that's going to be a problem. So I'll mention some criteria in a minute. But just to give you an example, challenge, clean the ocean, get all the plastic out, lots of different you know, broad investments across different sectors and lots of different projects. Well, your lending, for example, if you're a public bank, to some of these sectors will be conditional on you actually showing you're kind of playing the game in whatever way. Right? You cannot be micromanaging the process. You don't tell them what projects to do. This comes up bottom up. But you could also transform your instruments so they're conditional on playing that game or the different games. Obviously, a country will not just have one mission. So this is, I think, quite an ambitious uh, agenda, which is to transform the European Commission. This is about 100 billion euros we're talking about to no longer just be focused on particular sectors or projects or even technologies or researchers, but projects, technologies, researchers who are going to be interacting on solving different areas. And of course, just like going to the moon, this requires a lot of both basic research and applied research. Um, so criteria, how, you know, how do you actually choose missions? They should be bold and address societal value. Concrete targets, you know when you got there. Obviously involve research and innovation, but especially involve it across sectors, across actors, across disciplines, and definitely choose those that will be, you know, uh, uh, require lots of different types of solutions, otherwise you're going to get quite static. And we know the Soviet system did not work because it was quite top-down and static in that sense. I don't have time here, but if you're interested, I had, I think I brought about 10 copies of the report, but it's also free online. Um, second, organizations. You know, how do we actually build learning organizations that are actually able to deal with mission setting and that kind of bolder uh, uh, market-shaping approach? Um, well, the first thing, as I've already said, if you just look at the mission statements of these organizations in the past that were so important, they, well, first of all, they had mission statements. They were allowed to express um, boldness uh, like that. And I spoke quite a bit, actually, with uh, the second director of ARPA-E, um, and her name was Cheryl Martin, and I invited her back in 2014 when I hosted a big conference on mission-oriented finance around the world. And I kind of explicitly said to her, how do you do this, given that you know, I, I started to look at their investments and some weren't going very well. How do you think about failure? How do you welcome risk? And she said, well, you know, we actually measure our success by how many risks we have been willing to take and kind of see that we will have to fail along the way. So if we don't fail, we know we kind of weren't even trying. But also how much impact our successes have across the economy. And they actually ended up, after 2014, being the biggest innovator in the world around battery storage. But that whole issue of how do you attract people to want to come into an institution like that? How do you 
um, you know, get them to, uh, to be bold and even to brag about some of their failures, it is extremely hard. But you know, that requires understanding these organizations. And again, why the institute I've set up is kind of looking specifically at different types of organizations around the world. It's interesting that there's a bit of discussion of this in the literature. I mean, in that famous book by Nelson and Winter called Evolutionary Theory of Economic Change, they kind of touch on it, but there's been very little um, real thinking about this kind of concrete organizational uh, capability issues within these organizations and how they were set up. I just noticed you have a SID project here that sounds like it's um, around that. Uh, one of the things around these innovation labs that you have around the world is that they've remained kind of on the periphery of government, they don't kind of go to the center of how the treasury thinks. Um, and that's one of the big issues. Also, how we think about you know, value as being just created in business and being facilitated in um, the public sector also means that the kind of courses we teach around the world, so the business schools you know, tell uh, companies to you know, think about their capabilities, to take risks, to welcome uncertainty, to learn from trial and error, to make strategic choices. So you have strategic management, decision sciences, organizational behavior classes, be hungry, be foolish, Steve Jobs, great question, but the kind of training that we are providing through kind of public choice theory and its uh, uh, translation into new public management for civil servants is exactly the opposite. And in fact, this whole body of thought, which continues to be very powerful in the curriculum that civil servants are fed around the world, it needs reformation, to put it uh, lightly. Um, assessment, how do you evaluate these uh, public sector investments when they're actively creating something new, not just fixing an existing thing? Well, obviously, if you're checking whether you corrected something within an existing market versus whether you actually created something else and created real additionality, making things happen that would not have happened anyway, requires a different tool set. And what we've been doing is looking literally at particular types of evaluations I've already mentioned the BBC, but also these public banks. Ironically, those public banks, like the one that is in my country, Italy, uh, which don't have these kind of ambitions to transform, they end up really focusing so much on guarantees and subsidies, which are part of the problem, right? They create this kind of parasitic public-private relationship versus a kind of co-investment uh, role. Um, it's very interesting in health, where there are these big public actors, why they have also often been kind of captured along the way and haven't really been bold about redefining the market. So most of the spending in health is around drugs, very little around diagnostics, uh, surgical treatments, or lifestyle changes. There's you know, people who think that it might be good to jog and to eat yogurt and to wear sandals, but the, the kind of, kind of being facetious here, but the, if you just compare the amount of money going into drugs because of the pharmaceuticalization of the way we think of the health market, um, that's also something very important, that those public organizations interacting in this market-shaping process should be redefining what we even mean by the market. Um, this was that great quote by Keynes. Um, let me just move on and just say that what's interesting is many of these investments that I'm talking about, they're direct. I've already mentioned this problem with subsidies and kind of tax credits, but you can look around the world and you can see the difference between kind of tax incentives, this lighter blue, and direct government funding. <coughs> for example, in this case, to help companies invest in R&D. And what's quite interesting is, first of all, that there's huge differences, but most of what I've been talking about is this dark blue line. Um, and those, and there's sort of two points, those countries that rely too much on tax incentives, that assumes that business already wants to invest, right? And that if they do already want to invest, then that might affect how much exactly they invest. But what we've seen 
is that the amount of direct investment, but especially its structure, so again, the degree to which it's kind of mission-oriented, pushing new frontiers that later gets business interested, that's what actually creates additionality, getting businesses to want to spend an R&D that they wouldn't have spent anyway. Then if on top of that you do a tax credit, that might affect your marginal spending. But it's very hard to get business to want to invest if they don't sort of see a new opportunity. And that's in some ways what these mission-oriented investments and more directed, ambitious, strategic investments have done, which is to create that willingness, which then these uh, incentive schemes can affect. And so those countries that have higher business R&D spending are also ones that have benefited more from those kind of investments. So I'm out of time. I'm just going to go quickly over this last point, which is this whole socialization of risks and rewards. Um, and here the point is that you, know, you don't want to just be funding big expensive things and then just hope for the best that that's going to create great social value in the economy. It's also about creating that discussion about what we're investing in, that's that mission setting, but also thinking a bit more realistic about you know, how to distribute those rewards. And people sometimes forget that the year that NASA and DARPA, just two kind of emblematic mission-oriented or, or mission organizations were set up, the top marginal taxation rate in this country under a Republican military general, not a communist president, Eisenhower, was, anyone know? 90%. Yeah, over 90%, 91%. So, you know, it kind of used to come back through taxation, but even when it came back through taxation, there is, you know, I'm not sure that's the only system that should be used to think about this, because if you're just investing in upstream basic research, then you can kind of assume that there's also going to, so going to be some big spillovers across the economy. In some ways, that is the public reward. But as we have had increasing financialization of both the financial sector, but also actually of the real economy, this need for actually these public investments to go further on also downstream, that's when you get particular companies like Tesla, you know, getting the kind of loan it got. Again, Solyndra got the same amount. Uh, Apple also got a very early stage loan through a different program. Google's algorithm you know, went to a particular company through NSF. You know, there's different ways that we could also restructure these relationships so we get more symbiotic and what I call mutualistic partnerships and ecosystems. We should really learn from biology for this. And that could be conditions on reinvestment instead of having this massive hoarding and financialization of companies using things like share buybacks instead of reinvesting their profits back in. Why not? That's what we did, by the way, with Bell Labs, very innovative company. Uh, R&D lab within uh, AT&T, that came from government forcing AT&T in exchange for its monopoly status to reinvest its profits into innovation. Very interesting story there. There could be ways to restructure IPR so it's more narrow and weaker instead of having very broad and strong patents and upstream patents, which then hurts the ability for that knowledge to be diffused once the patent's up. That could be part of the public reward. We could cap the prices. This is just so obvious. It's crazy that we don't do it prices of the drugs that are financed through over $30 billion uh, every year of public money. Why not? It's never been done. Even though if you read the Bay-Dole Act, which allowed uh, publicly funded research to be patented, they kind of foresaw that problem, but governments never enacted their right to cap those prices. Uh, negotiating conditions, income contingent loans, we do this with students. Why not with companies? It's quite extraordinary. Different types of equity deals. I'll just close with this story because it's so extraordinary. When Tesla got that $465 million guaranteed loan, Obama had all these Goldman Sachs guys in the government. Probably know that because you know, some people criticize him for that. And the one time they could have been useful, they said nothing. So what he said was, if you don't pay back the loan, uh, we get 3 million shares in your company. 
and it's not clear why you would want 3 million shares in a company that doesn't pay back its loan. It's probably not a very good company. Had he said we get 3 million shares in your company if you do pay back the loan and you're successful, um, the price per uh, share went from 9 to 90, and 3 million times that difference would have more than paid the cylindra loss in the next round of investment. And that is, in fact, that kind of Yasma type of thinking, and there's really no reason why you wouldn't do that. You could also just retain some of that equity for a period, and this isn't about lining politicians' pockets with that money. It's about putting it perhaps into some sort of innovation fund to fund the next round, etc. Anyway, um, we don't have that. Now I have other slides here just telling you how bad things are about uh, that we actually have sort of allowed some of these very large companies that do get these big uh, benefits from public money to, for example, spend more than 100% of their net income on things like share buybacks and dividends. But I don't want to go into that because that would bring us too far away. I'll just say the last thing, which is I really think this whole issue of thinking about a different type of innovation and industrial policy requires us to, in the first place, kind of rethink this whole dichotomy here, which has been sold to us and is sold by economic theory when we just talk about fixing, enabling, de-risking. Um, it requires changing the vocabulary. So this just comes from the flyer you have there, where we say, you know, stop talking about leveling, tilt it, don't fix, co-create, don't de-risk, welcome uncertainty, don't pick winners, pick the willing. If you start actually asking what would this mean in your toolkit, it's quite transformational. I definitely welcome you to get in touch with the Institute in London if you're ever around or if you're interested in getting involved in some of our work. Um, this is my new book. <laughs> it's out next week in the UK. It's out in September uh, here. And what I do here is kind of start from the beginning, which is what are the actual theories of value, where value comes from in the economy that have been part of the problem. Um, but let me stop because I'm five minutes over. And welcome questions. <laughs> How can you what? How can you How to get involved? Yeah. I'll just send an email. No, just kidding. I'll, okay, I'll, no, I'm not being facetious. Okay, so should I answer each one individually, or should I take a few? Should, I'll just quickly answer. So, um, first of all, I think not many countries are actually asking the question. What you have is lots of talk of reform. So in Italy, we have la riforma della pubblica amministrazione. That sounds great, right? Reforming our public sector. <laughs> what it actually means is making it a bit more efficient, right? And the kind of efficiency metrics that are being used, um, I would say, are, are ones that had we used those types of um, metrics, we would you know, not only never have gone to the moon, but also not have achieved some of the most ambitious things. Like in the UK, I don't know if you know about GDS, Government Digital Service, um, which has been quite extraordinary what they've done with the digital platform. That required a particular way of rethinking who citizens are. Citizens are not clients. They're not customers, they're users, right? So what, what's interesting with some of these reform issues is that they've kind of centered around costs. You know, what's the cost of our public sector? How do we make it cost a bit less? How do we make it more efficient with pretty static efficiency metrics? How do we also simply, you know, cut it, right? Because of all this emphasis on public budgets, which is quite extraordinary when the financial crisis was caused by 
private debt, right? So the fact that we obsess for so long on public debt, and I'm not saying public debt is not a problem, but as soon as you start looking at these as investments and not spend, right? So already getting it out of the current account kind of spending part of the budget, it already makes you start thinking, well, how would you analyze these things that are being done literally as a you know, capital of the state? And that itself requires the treasuries to transform. And this is one of the things that I would say really has caused failure, which is as long as these, and I kind of alluded to that, as long as some of these experiments are being done as kind of innovation labs on the periphery of government, they might produce interesting things, and, and I think they do. There's lots of lessons from some of these innovation labs. But until you hit the treasury, or what some countries call Ministry of Finance, um, very little changes. So what, you know, I've seen this again with the BBC. So you have a really innovative organization that has absolutely been transformational, but every year it gets, it gets evaluated in these very static ways. And the only reason that the BBC has survived those evaluations is because the British people just love it so much. But that's often not the case with some public organizations that may not have that love, there's that history, that legacy to it, right? That has also to do with culture. And so if we, a, a key challenge, I think, is to get um, these discussions about what does a market shaping and innovation-led growth strategy look like to be happening kind of very horizontally across government and to be impacting the Treasury as much as, say, the Ministry of Innovation or the Ministry of Development. Um, having said that, I think you're right. There are actually experiments around the world, and I wouldn't say they failed. It's just that they become, they remain peripheral, right? And I think actually uh, Roberto Unger, who's here at Harvard, I don't know if you've taken it, I think he's, he's great. And he had a, I once heard a talk he gave, but I haven't seen much of his writings on this, of how to really transform some of these uh, social innovation, small ex, you know, experiments, how to systematize them and really make them kind of become the way that kind of countries function, from, away from little social innovation experiments to the way we think across government. Um, and so that's one of the things we're trying to do. Uh, which is to, by having this kind of sharing platform between these 30 organizations which are currently around the world except Africa. So I'm going to take part of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation uh, conference at the end of April with the Institute where we're going to be running a small workshop on rethinking the public sector and learning more as a listening exercise because I don't know very much about what's been happening around public sector reform in Africa, but asking, you know, what can we... Uh, learn about the, again, experiments that have also been happening in that part of the world, just to say we don't have any African partners yet in this MOIN network, but part of the sharing platform has also been to focus initially the first kind of activities over the first six months on the evaluation metrics, because there's a whole feedback effect. It's called performativity, by the way, in sociology. How you judge the performance of an actor, it could be a university, then affects behavior, which then feeds back into your thinking about their role, which feeds back into your thinking of how they should be evaluated. So you get into this loop, and it's very hard to get out of it until you get very different evaluation metrics. Um, how to get involved, so we have a big research area, which is around, um, well, different areas, whether it's on the public banking side, the green economy, space partnerships, how to develop public-private partnerships that are, again, symbiotic and not parasitic. In space, we are repeating all the mistakes on Earth. So Novartis, very rich pharmaceutical company, is working for free on the International Space Station and patenting. It's like, who thought that up? <laughs> uh, right? So it's, it's, it's quite, you know, and, 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 and we, how do you say, hype up people like Elon Musk, and, you know, he received $5 billion from the U.S. government. And my problem is, one, he never said thank you. 
you know, even just say thanks. <laughs> and I'm not saying it as a mother of four children when I tell them, say thank you. I'm saying it, if you said thanks, people would start kind of knowing that that's what you received and that would help us understand, you know, all sorts of different relationships as opposed to mythologizing this entrepreneur. And it's not that he's not entrepreneurial, I think he's probably a really smart guy. But when we don't talk about the ecosystems behind, so the entrepreneurial system behind an entrepreneur, we get very problematic policies and we also increase inequality. Oh God, everyone's hands. <laughs> uh, why don't you do the question, the picking, the picking winners? <laughs> okay, sure. Um, Marian, a huge fan of your work. I'm Daniel Loke. I'm visiting from uh, the University of Technology in Sydney and right. doing a lot of research with the government on impact investing and social finance. One of the big issues we come across is getting this agreement on measures of social returns on investment. And I'm just wondering, is that something calculating social value that you are covering in your new book, or what's your approach to that type of um, issue that seems to hamstring a lot of these new social financing deals, like social impact bonds? Right. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's different questions there. One is the social impact bonds. I think one of the issues is that, and this comes back to my earlier point, which is that how we do public-private partnerships, or PFI schemes, private finance initiatives, one of the things the public has done along the way is lost this kind of directional setting, right? And that's part of the return. So if in space, you on the one hand tell Elon Musk, yeah, come and play, let's do that together, versus allow the Elon Musk actually just kind of set what the new missions are going to be on the back of this massively, you know, publicly financed infrastructure. <coughs> so somehow, and this is the mission approach, setting, you know, retaining your directional setting. So if you're bringing in private actors in, uh, into the health area. What kind of health system is it that you want to sort of be uh, in the end? You know, you want it to be inclusive, you want it to be, you know, free, you want it to be universal, you want it to be high quality, etc. That has to be set with very clear, you know, not just targets, but that kind of public value uh, uh, mechanism has to be constantly talking about the sort of the outcome. What actually happened in the PFI schemes in, in the UK is they completely kind of gave up that direction setting, brought in the, the private sector, and the public sector simply de-risked, you know, this word, de-risked the private initiative without then having control over the outcome of what kind of health system actually was arising. And one of the issues is that because that also entailed outsourcing a lot of activities, as well as some of the knowledge creation activities, you actually do become, I don't want to say stupid, but it's not just about, you know, you, you, you should be in control. Is are you actually investing in the capacity and the capabilities to even understand the space in which you're uh, operating? And, I mean, I'm not saying that civil servants around the world have become um, dumb in any way, but there is, again, that self-fulfilling prophecy, too. You start outsourcing your knowledge, creating mechanisms. You actually don't know how to manage that process. Brexit, by the way, uh, probably won't happen, not because they've decided not to have it, not because there's going to be a second referendum. They simply can't manage it. it it's a huge task to do Brexit. They have de decimated the civil service over the last 20 years. They can't handle it. They've hired four consulting companies, the usual, Deloitte, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers, to do it for them at huge daily rates. You can imagine that no one obviously is, is calculating. Just Anyway, just to say the managerial capacity is being decimated. And I think that's just as much an issue about the return the social rates of return, I mean, how they're currently being done and all the net present value and cost-benefit analyses is exactly what we're trying to change. And, and, and the reason we put up this thing of, you know, don't do cost-benefit, do dynamic spillovers, the degree to which even something like the Concorde plane, right? It's not flying, it's an obvious failure, 
in that lens, if it's a private lens, but all the spillover effects that occurred across the economy from the Concord investments, no one ever bothered to calculate. I've looked everywhere. There's no article, no book, nothing on the effect that the Concord investments had across the economy. All you have is stories that they were huge, and yet everyone calls it a failure. It's, it's the classic picking winners problem, right? So really being able to capture those spillovers that are created from a public investment, even when the mission fails, is, is part of what we're trying to do. So maybe someone in the back? Sure. Um, could you speak a little bit about the international aspect of this, where we have spillovers that are increasingly global and trans, uh, transnational? Um, it seems right. like generally the trend has been towards trying to reduce those spillovers through like IP protections. So if you think about the pharmaceutical space. Yeah. Uh, how would you, I guess, approach that, and what would you recommend? I mean, are you generally in favor of all spillovers as they go across all boundaries, or is there a national component to this? I think a lot of the programs that you alluded to were like, for example, U.S. programs. Mm -hmm. And U.S. programs have been successful creating spillovers for the entire world. So how should, I guess, U.S. Right. policymakers do that? Okay. Should we take maybe two or three at a time? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You mentioned that you're about to partner up with, I think, some countries in Africa. Yeah. And my question, when I was listening to your presentation, I kept thinking about um, how can countries that are dependent on international aid um, try to escape that trap when it comes to public finance going into a number of goals in the end when the international aid money is so limited and there are so much conditions involved in it? So, but the question is, how can they do what? How, how, can how can they, they avoid what trap? Um, how can they, you know, try to um, do what you what you suggesting okay. for them to do mm -hmm. in terms of putting money into less uh, common places to spread right. innovation? Okay. So maybe one more, and then I'll, we'll get another round. Yeah. But sorry, what what time are we allowed to stay here? Till two thirty. Oh, good. Okay. Okay, so um, these are all really, really good questions. So the first uh, on the spillovers, um, I mean, most when you take this kind of mission-oriented lens, most of these missions can only be tackled actually internationally. So that's sort of a separate point, which is, you know, are we actually talking about you know sort of challenge-led directionality in terms of you know nation states or across countries? So the really big ones like climate change, obviously, they're not going to happen within a nation state. But that's that's sort of the easier answer, right? That's about, you know, this is going to require collaboration between different countries at different levels, whether it's research institutions or even public banks actually work a lot together around leveraging up also some private finance. Um, but the, the, the more difficult question, I think, is 
if you are a country that is going to be producing because you're actually successful at thinking of the whole innovation chain, not obsessing about any one little bit, some great startups, for example, and then they all end up in Silicon Valley, what do you do? And um, there's no easy answer to that, but I would say that that's exactly what a mission-oriented kind of approach could help solve. So I've seen this happen in Denmark, where it's a tiny little country, right, compared to you know, Chinese economy, U.S. economy, but because they've approached green in a very ambitious way around green cities, again, transformational across the whole economy, including production, distribution, but especially the demand-side consumption. Uh, by the way, I think 30% of Tesla cars are sold in Norway because of these bold, it's a different country, bold uh, demand-side policies. Then what they've been able to do is create kind of these hubs and dynamic kind of just more energy, if you want, around what it means to go green, which becomes a huge force for attracting capital, right? So Denmark is a very, very interesting place to go if you're a company because you also learn a lot. It becomes a hub of new thinking. So even if some are leaving, others are constantly coming, whereas countries that are just thinking about kind of attracting capital through kind of cheap, you know, lowest corporate income tax in the world or low regulation, that becomes much less, if you want, of a resilient strategy in terms of you know, companies come and companies go as soon as someone else offers them a better deal. But Denmark, by doing this, has become the number one provider to China's green economy of high-tech services. Right? So China's spending $1.7 trillion on green, <laughs> trillion, 12 zeros, um, and a little country like Denmark is servicing them besides doing all the manufacturing they do around green and, you know, Vestas, et cetera. And that comes from not having a patchy policy, right? So if you're just thinking of it as, you know, fixing different market failures, you don't create that kind of buzz. You don't create that kind of interaction between manufacturing and services. Um, I mean, the aid money, I think what you were basically getting at is, is just the point that, sorry, who was it again? There you are, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, that what do you do when you don't have a budget, <laughs> basically, to fund any of this stuff? Well, I think that's, even more important than for those countries. And I'm not going to tell you how countries develop. That's obviously going to bring us to a whole other area. Um, but especially for countries with limited resources who can't just be spending on all sorts of sectors and all sorts of technologies, thinking about what are the key problems in those countries that you want to activate lots of your different actors, which aren't just public, not just private, not just third sector, but together, to solve, that's, that's you know fantastic. So if you do have a public bank but limited money in that public bank, then instead of ditching it out to some SMEs here, some technologies there, every little, you know, every sector getting just a bit, concentrated on solving the problem, which, however, requires investment. Investment's the key word, by the way. It's not about charity. You know, it's about investment across different sectors to solve that problem. Um, so I think, I mean, and again, this is something I'm very interested in, uh, better understanding, especially around health systems in some African countries, how to use concrete missions around the health area to drive investment-led growth. The wrong direction question, um, so you know, partly that's what I was saying, which is you're going to have to actually accept that some of this is going to be screwing up along the way, but you have to also understand why that is. So if you mess up because you put all your eggs in the one basket, like supercomputers, or if you're going green, all your eggs in the offshore wind basket, that's not what we're talking about, right? That's not a portfolio. So in fact, I think some people today are even confusing AI. That's not a challenge, that's not a mission, that's a technology that can be used to solve different problems, including you know, big data, for example, has been overly used for some areas, like personalized medicine, and underutilized for all sorts of things around the welfare state. 
So housing decisions, who gets to live on a, on a social housing or you know, a project or whatever you call it in the US. Um, we haven't actually used the power of big data to make more better informed decisions to actually improve the quality of life and the quality of decisions that we're making. Um, but that's about, again, thinking about failure is inevitable, but failure to construct that wide portfolio is a failure one shouldn't have. You should not just do supercomputers, right? Because that might go wrong. Someone else might beat you along the way and then you stop because that's all you did. But also investing in the capacity to learn from those failures and the degree to which MITI, you know, which I think in Japan was a very important institution, but then maybe got too skewed around particular types of areas versus seeing themselves also as fundamental to developing new capabilities and new kind of opportunities. Um, but also the kind of how we set the missions that's sort of that earlier point in such a way that would require, say, supercomputing would almost be a, a spillover along the way <laughs> to solving that grander problem um, because then there's going to be lots of other different spillovers too, right? Um, as opposed to obsessing over supercomputing. And many countries are obsessing now over quantum computing. Um, and that's fine. You can do quantum computing, but that's just kind of like a portfolio of a research portfolio. That's not about this kind of directed growth agenda. Ooh, okay. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, really important. Uh, I wonder how states respond to you talking about this. Mm -hmm. And I asked because I first started reading your work when I was lowly policy analyst writing speeches for my government, uh, drafting them on why Which government? Germany. Okay. Why, we're, why the state is so bad at innovation mm. and why we rely on the private sector. So I guess the question is twofold. One, why is that narrative still so powerful? Yeah. And despite all the evidence, and how do states react in terms of saying, okay, we want to do this, we want to jump in the train? Right. Okay. Sorry, Scott, I asked you to choose people, and then I kept choosing. I'll let you do it. <laughs> Thank you for the presentation. And my question is related to the political barriers that you might encounter. So I'm, I was thinking uh, a lot in parallel to the East Asian development state model, and I see a lot as well, some parallels with that. I'm wondering if that was uh, legitimized by a much stronger state as well as uh, the acceptance of this political business elite, an excess of a political business elite, then how do you see that playing out in, I guess, the international context? And if you agree with that, then what would be the political uh, acceptance or appetite for that kind of model? So you mean the role of leadership, basically, that in some of these... Um East Asian countries, they wouldn't have developed without a political elite that made certain decisions. And yeah, what's so the a role very of strong state. very strong state? Yeah. Okay. So also lack of democracy, maybe in some places. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you already ask the question before? No. Okay. Sorry. I was just looking at you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. I'm writing my PhD thesis on uh, the role of finance and in Germany and how the state is actually involved, so your uh, work is incredibly helpful. And I was wondering, I have two quick questions, uh, and they are both to the, to the sort of, I, how I understand your argument that is very important sort of to change the narrative and how we really mm -hmm. think about state versus market and their connection. At the same time, the story and the narratives are, all, are also connected to sort of vested interests, right? Yeah. And we know that neoliberal think tanks and all that, and they are connected to financial industry, and I would like to hear some ideas you might have that if we think about how changing that, how this is related to also changing interests and uh, right. all these sort of uh, related topics. And then the second aspect, very much related, is that you mentioned that this is already embedded also in educational systems in business schools. And right. again, there, how where would you start uh, giving new ideas and changing that? Okay. 
Should we just take two more? Because I don't think we're going to have time sure, to do that. Sure, so yeah. I thank you for taking my question. I'm from South Africa. My question would be, with the history that we've just created for ourselves in the last 10 years, whereby the private sector as well as government colluded mm. to strip off the assets of the public, how would now, now the youth who are now left unemployed participate in rebuilding confidence from the investor to say, come and reinvest in South Africa? Right. <laughs> Huge question, but thanks. One more? You the last question. Was there another hand? No? Okay, good. That'll be easier. Great, okay. Um, so, Germany, I mean, I guess it was a more of a general question. How do states react? So, I mean, obviously, so I, I often say that I walk in as an economist when I'm speaking to civil servants and I walk out as a life coach because I get all these hugs, you know, thank you, thank you, you make me happy again, you make me want to wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> um, and at first I was actually taken aback, but then I was like, yeah, there's just coming. <laughs> no, because it's depressing. I mean, it is depressing. You're, you know, if at best you're called a market fixer, at worst you're called an impediment, you know, just get the mm out of the way so the great entrepreneurs can do their thing. When you're actually there on the ground trying to, you know, be ambitious and doing good, and yet also how you're being framed in terms of your own career structure is kind of going against that ambition. You can't because you're going to be accused of being too bold, and if you fail, you're on the front page of the newspaper as big failure. That's extremely hard. So the reaction I've gotten, if you want, both actually at quite high level, I worked on um, before Christian Kern lost the, you know, was no longer prime minister now, but he was the prime minister of Austria. He was really keen, and I had about five <laughs> prime ministers ringing me up, literally like, my secretary was like, what the hell, you didn't tell me this would happen, because she would often say, hello? <laughs> I'm like, no, just sound a bit better, because it might be the prime minister. I'm like, no, just kidding. Uh, no, but we had literally five prime ministers at that level interested in engaging with us, because they realized to actually change you know, Dilma, too, you know, if she's not very popular right now because of all the craziness stuff that's happening in Brazil, but Dilma and Lula, and, you know, unfortunately he's in, is he in prison? Has he actually gone? Oh, my God. Okay, you know, what they actually were trying to do was, at least in theory, extremely ambitious. It was about inclusive growth and innovation-led growth, right? So those countries, forget whether they're good or bad, because that would, you know, bring us to the whole corruption thing, um, but... At the level of prime ministers, what I found was they really liked this idea that you know, innovation-led growth is not about innovation for innovation's sake. It's also about just making different choices and how then you also think about that whole risk-reward thing. becomes a very, It just becomes a more activist agenda around how we think about inequality. It's no longer just about redistribution, which to be honest, as important as that is, it's a bit boring, right? Because if at best kind of social democratic parties and center left kind of agendas are about redistributing the wealth created elsewhere, it's kind of hard to get people interested and that leads to populism, right? I mean, lots of things lead to populism, but that becomes some, a force that some people that I met at very high levels recognize as a new narrative for also combating what was also this disillusionment with you know, what are we actually talking about. But anyway, at the, more, at the civil service level, what I found was a huge thirst, right? Because people who were actually trying to do interesting things were really being blocked by, for example, coming back to the, one of the questions around the business, the, the training schemes that we have. So there is, I mean, obviously there's resistance. And again, one of the questions uh, asked this, but there is a real thirst for something different. 
But if that's something different or just stories, if it's just about saying this is neoliberal, we need to do something else, it doesn't actually go anywhere. When you start saying, let's break this down into literally different tools, right? So when I say we need a different toolkit, what does it mean to actually have a treasury that values, evaluates this stuff differently? I've been having those conversations now in the UK treasury, and they themselves are very interested. Because if, if you think of the multiplier, you know, the Keynesian multiplier, which is for every pound of government money, what effect does it actually have on GDP? If with these public investments that we have, and you should think of tax incentives also as public investments, still money being going somewhere, um, uh, that then you don't achieve that kind of you know, wider economic growth, that's a problem for you in the treasury. So the, the, the same treasury people are extremely worried about capture, right? When you have an industrial strategy that is captured by say pharmaceuticals or financial services or even the creative sector, that becomes a problem for how you think about that kind of, you know, also growth at the treasury level. So what I'm trying to do is to sort of both think about these things at a very kind of practitioner level, but again, at the same time, it has to happen at the same time. It can't be kind of chronological, putting it at sort of at the center of how the treasuries think about their way to engage because the instruments that we're talking about are funded by the treasuries, right? So they are constantly evaluating them. Um, and I guess the quick answer is there's a real thirst for this but it's extremely hard to do it unless we are act actively creating different kind of discourses and narratives about it. And that's about revealing. I mean, that is literally about getting stuff into the newspapers. The fact that no one, I can bet you no one, in, I mean, very few people in this country know that 75% of new molecular entities with priority rating, in other words, important drugs, medicines, are funded by the state is a problem. The fact that people don't know that Google's algorithm was funded by the state is a problem. The fact that no one knows that Tesla or Elon Musk got five billion, Tesla got close to 500 million, that is an easy problem to solve, <laughs> right? If people start writing about it. Um, it's much harder to set up a new curriculum. Um, the, the issue around the political elite, I mean, this is, I think there's two issues there. People matter, and this is one issue within even the US government. Up until now, Trump is the first president who's actually, I think, dismantling some of these organizations I've been talking about. Reagan financed them. Um, when you have a mission-oriented organization, it's actually an honor to work for it. So the US government, one of its secrets has been to attract very high-level individuals to direct some of these agencies. So Steve Chu, Nobel Prize-winning physicist, was running the Department of Energy when Obama wanted to redirect uh, the $800 billion stimulus program in 2009 towards the green areas. And that's when he set up ARPA-E. And Steve Chu's like, I'll help. Now you can imagine, would you have that kind of you know, ambitious kind of scientist wanting to you know, count me in if he was just seen as facilitating the cool green guys you know, in the private sector? Of course not. So that's one thing, which is just leadership matters and how you attract top level people into you know, government matters as much as we like to pretend that you know, perhaps it's all, all just about systems. So when I went to Singapore, I won't say the name of the person because he actually is now even much higher up than he was before, um, he said to me, the reason why Taiwan kind of went down the drain was because they brought in democracy. All this stuff is much easier to do when it's kind of top down. Don't ask the people what they want. And I can tell you, having lived in the UK, when you ask people what they want, they end up wanting Brexit. You start saying, don't ask the people anything. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, that was a joke. Um, but I'm from Singapore. So. Oh, are you from Singapore? Okay. So that's an issue, right? I mean, I think there's one issue is around meritocracy. And I don't know very much about China, actually. I've been focusing just on bits about China. But there is this whole strange thing in China where, on the one hand, it's not democratic, but actually the government 
it's quite democratic. <laughs> Sorry, not democratic, meritocratic. There is this level of meritocracy that you would say most European countries you don't have. You have a lot of you know well-meaning but not very intelligent people, um, you know, in, in in many governments around the world. And so how China has sort of combined those two things, which doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just a fact, right? That democracy does not always go together with meritocracy. But Singapore, what's interesting to me was they had all sorts of different ethnic groups in government, right? Yeah? yeah, I mean, and, and so on the one hand, it's not very democratic, but they have had other types of ways to bring in, you know, different types of opinions. Um, and again, meritocracy, that I would argue we have less of that, say, in the UK, where everyone who's in government has gone to Oxford, Cambridge, and Eton, basically. Um, but the, the challenge is for sure, the answer must be that you can try to do this mission setting within not only a democratic government, but within societies that really engage all sorts of stakeholders in setting those missions. So even that Kennedy moment of let's go to the moon and back again within a century, as interesting as that was because of the inspiration behind it, the speech, all sorts of great things that happened, that's not how we're going to do the sustainable development goals today. It's not going to be one leader saying, let's do that, that's the target, because then it just becomes a little pet project, right? How to really harness movements is what Germany did with the Energiewende, there was 40 years of the green movement, which actually brought legitimacy to the green transformation to German society, which then Merkel could later top down, kind of impose that. And what's great about that is it becomes very resilient. When the next leader comes in, you don't just change that, because it's actually something that people felt no? that they kind of won, that, that they co-created the mission itself setting. And that's, I think, the challenge, how today, where there's all these movements or movements around health, we need better health, we need better health systems, even in the US, huge problems in the US health system, how to harness these movements, these are social movements, to help set what the missions are, right? And then you know, get those instruments in place that get you that cross-sectoral, cross-actor, multiple solutions. That must be the way. It cannot be you know, introducing dictatorships and as interesting as Singapore is, I mean, it's not democratic, and I think most of us find that problematic. So I think I'm sorry. Um, I'll just say with South Africa, the issue of trust is huge. I mean, I'm from Italy. Let me tell you, we got problems <laughs> around corruption, mafia. Yeah. Uh, but you know where the mafia came from was a self-help organization called the Beati Paoli because the state was not there. The state was bad. The state was not providing any help. This, this is where gangs currently in London, where I live, there's serious gang violence and also in my neighborhood in, in uh, Camden, where these gangs are coming from are you know, the sense by these young kids, teenagers, 17 20 to 20 year old boys, that the state is not there, right? You form the gang and then whatever. There's all, I mean, it's very complex, obviously, but mafia came from that. And once you have that, once you also have mafia inside <laughs> the state itself, right? I mean, the trust is almost zero. So people in Italy are like, yeah, uh-huh, go on talking, right, you know? And, and so the question is, how do you, not start from scratch, because you can't start from scratch. These are, you know, institutions are in place. We have, for example, a public bank in Italy, which is extremely problematic. It's been part of the problem. It's been part of this parasitic handouts, favors. We can even just call it corruption, even though it's not really corrupt. It's just parasitic relationships between public and private. So people lose trust in the ability of this public bank to do good. It just becomes another servant of the sort of, you know, favors. So personally, I think it, you have to do both things at the same time. So you can't say, 
we're going to do, you know, a reforma della pubblica amministrazione, get rid of almost the state, just cut it down to, down, you know, to, to nothing, because actually the state is so problematic, it's so corrupt, we just need to get all these other actors in society doing good. What you need to do is build new institutions of institutional innovation, social innovation that brings back trust into these organizations. So for example, with the public bank, creating conditions, which you can actually do if, you, if you're interested in doing it, you can do it. We've seen institutions massively change that are, that are providing um, you know, funds based on conditions attached to characteristics of organizations that are willing to actually engage with, one of the, with some of these public value-based investments as opposed to, you know, again, handouts kind of structures. It has failed. Sorry? I was just saying, the handouts have failed. It's failed. So, so what do you think? I think in nine, we can I suggest, oh. I'm sorry. Should we just talk on we'll, the side? Yeah, oh. we, have, we have people who need to leave for class. Oh, okay. Uh, but please join me in thanking Marianne Muscat for <laughs> Can you stay for a little bit? Yeah, and, yeah, and I'm happy so to. Those yeah. who do have questions can continue. Yeah.